Today's scripture reading is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 16, verses 7 to 13. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring of water in the desert. The spring was beside the road to Shur. And the angel said, Hagar, you are Sarai's slave. Where have you come from? Where are you going? I'm running away from my owner, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to the woman who owns you, obey her. The angel continued, I will give you and your family many children. There will be more of them than anyone can count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael because the Lord has heard about your suffering. He will be like a wild donkey. He will use his power against everyone and everyone will be against him. He will not get along with any of his family. She then gave a name to the Lord who spoke to her. She called him, you are the God who sees me. That is because she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. If I have not met you, my name is Gabe Coyle. I'm one of the pastors here. And this last week, the modern painting entitled Beyond the Myth of Benevolence struck me. Hanging to one side is a tapestry on a canvas. It's a portrait of Thomas Jefferson. And, and leaning and looking out the side is an African-American woman. With her brown skin and her piercing eyes, she has this interminable gaze that is both cautioning you and also coming with so much assertiveness in the midst of this portrait. I mean, it struck me this week. And, and the, the artist, Titus Kafar, who's absolutely brilliant, um, I spent way too much time on YouTube watching videos of him explain various art pieces of his. He writes this about this particular piece. This painting is about Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, and yet it is not. The woman who sits here is not just simply a representation of Sally Hemings. She's more of a symbol of many of the black women whose stories have been shrouded by the narratives of our deified founding fathers. Sally Hemings is maybe one of the most well-known and almost unknown African-American women in the United States history. For over 200 years, she has been known primarily as Thomas Jefferson's concubine. But her life, the rest of her life, the majority of her life as a daughter, an aunt, a mother, a sister, her negotiation and liberation that she brings for others is merely forgotten. You see, Sally Hemings is a story of someone who's seen and yet unseen, someone who's known and yet unknown. And we're only beginning to hear more and more of her story and the amazing feat and how she leveraged her position, which is maybe one of the most crass ways of putting it, but leveraging her position to negotiate the promised freedom and liberation of her children when they reach 21 years of age. You see, Sally Hemings, in the words of Titus Kafar, is brilliant and, and brilliantly portrayed here. Not only because of its specificity, but also because of its universality. Specifically, through this particular painting and Sally Hemings' life overall, we get a window into the story of minorities throughout history in every culture. 
And simultaneously, this is a very human story. To some degree, every single person, to some degree, knows what it means to be and to feel invisible. When was the last time you felt invisible? Maybe you feel that way this morning, like no, no one sees you, like no one really knows you, knows what's going on in your life. And in the midst of questions and pain and heartache, you feel extraordinary loneliness and isolation. Because listen to me, no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, it's a very human question to ask, does anyone see me? See my life and does anyone even care? And that's why I'm so excited about our passage this morning in Scripture. I think it's today one of the most surprising stories in Genesis. And much like Kafar's painting, over a three-act drama, we see this unfolding, this unshrouding of seeing the world the way that God sees the world. And when we learn to see things from God's perspective, our lives, the people around us, our suffering, it becomes one of the most empowering positions to be in despite some of the most grotesque of oppressive situations. It changes the way we see God. It changes the way we see ourselves. And really, there's a great possibility that when we begin to see things through God's perspective, the way he sees them, it may very well change what other people see in you as well. So let's take a look together. If you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16, verse 1. If you're using one of our community Bibles, it's found on page number 11. We read, Now Sarai... Abram's wife had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Right here at the opening act, we're introduced to three primary characters, Sarai, Abram, and an Egyptian slave girl by the name of Hagar. Sarai, her name is later changed to Sarah. Abram is later changed to Abraham. We'll find out more about that next week. And this week, I'm going to call them Sarai and Abram to lean into the text in this point in the story But right here at the very beginning, in this opening act, we feel the tension. The very first verse here lays the groundwork. Sarai cannot and has not had any children. And so the first act is this aching wife. Sarah, we we get this picture right here at the very beginning of Sarah and her pain and her barrenness. But to be very clear, the main character of this, this morning's story isn't Sarai. It's Hagar. We've we've been introduced to Abram and Sarai up to this point. We've seen them. We've got to know them a little bit. But here Hagar makes her debut. Hagar is an Egyptian. And if you remember a little bit back, if you're familiar with the story as it's presented here in Genesis, the history of Abram and Sarai, you'll remember that back when they first leave the city of Ur, there is a famine that goes across the land. And Abram and Sarai, they make their way to Egypt. Because of the Nile and its rich soil, it is a breadbasket when the rest of the Middle East goes through extraordinary famine. So they make their way to Egypt. And Abram, the great guy that he is, plays Sarai off as his sister so that the Egyptians don't kill him. He's afraid they're going to kill him because Sarai is so beautiful. And frankly, just as an aside, this is why I believe this text so much. 
Because when it comes to the founding fathers of our faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there is no whitewashing. There is no hiddenness of the extraordinary flaws through whom the man that God says to Abram, I'm going to bring about blessing this earth over, we see him fail again and again and again. And for thousands of years, people have hand-copied this story remaining and keeping Abe's flaws for the world to see. And right here, Abram makes some massive, massive mistakes. But what's crucial is that right here, Hagar enters here in Egypt. You see, when Abram and Sarai, they go to Egypt, the Egyptians give Abram and Sarai these gifts, and amongst them are male and female slaves. Now, what we don't know is how old Hagar is when she's given as a slave. We don't know how old she is when she became a slave. We don't know the conditions that brought about her slavery, but we do know that she is enslaved in Egypt. And we know that at least in Egypt, she's surrounded by a culture she knows, surrounded by a language she knows. Maybe even she would make her way to the marketplace and run into some family. But there comes a day where after Hagar is given to Abram and Sarai, the famine is over, across the Middle East, and now Hagar is taken to a land she doesn't know, the land of Canaan away from family, away from the culture she's familiar with, to a world that does not speak her language. Can you imagine how invisible she must have felt at this moment? Well, things get worse. Because while she is away, now from Egypt, away from her home, her mistress, Sarai, tells her that she is to marry Abe. And so there becomes a forced marriage between Hagar and and Abram, look with me here at verse 2. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now there's a whole host of wrong things happening here. All kinds of pain and turmoil. I want to first take a snapshot of Sarai's pain. Sarai, for years, the first time we're introduced to Sarai, back in Genesis chapter 12, we're described her barrenness. She longs for a child. She longs to hold a child for herself and call this child her own. And some of you know that pain all too well here this morning. But on top of that, she's a part of a culture where women, as they are described, the primary value that they're seen to bring within the family in this cultural context is to produce an heir, to produce children. Your value, your identity is wrapped up in your child-rearing, your procreative possibilities. Hence the reason her barrenness is hinted at again and again and again. To make matters worse, she's been given hope. She's been given hope. Imagine this. She's back in the city of Ur and Abram comes in, her husband, and says, hey, God met with me, the creator God. And he says, we're going to have a kid. We're going to finally have the child we've been longing for. Now he says, we have to go to a land. I don't know where it is. We have to leave everything we know, but God promised we're going to have children. And she, you know, God doesn't speak to Sarai directly. She speaks through Abram here in this particular story. So she's taking Abram on his word. She sees the glisten in his eyes. She sees his excitement. She trusts him and says, okay, let's go. And then later, we saw in Genesis chapter 15, 
God speaks to Abram again, and Abram's like, hey, 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 we learned about this last week. What about, is Eleazar, the servant of mine, is he going to be the one who you bring the promise about? And God's like, no, 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 it's going to be your child. So, and, and these children, your, your children's children's children, right? Like, they're going to be more than the stars in the sky. So she hears promise upon promise upon promise. And here at this point in the story, this is 10 years after that first promise. 120 months of disappointment. Again and again and again. And you can't help but wonder all the questions that are going through her mind. Was Abram wrong? Did we do something wrong? Why is God taking, I mean, she is 75 years old at this point. The likelihood that any sort of natural recourse in terms of bringing about a child feels absurd. And so she begins to wonder in her desperation and her pain and just her exhaustion of finally waiting. Okay, I'm going to take things into my own hands. Who knows if God will actually deliver, but there is this other option. My servant, Hagar. Now, before we start coming with, you know, a 21st century lens of condemnation upon this, what we need to understand is that in the, the ancient Near East, her recommendation of Hagar to now be basically another wife to Abram as a surrogate to now bring children that would be Sarai's was extraordinarily common cultural practice. It was celebrated in that culture. It was something you just did because that's the way things go. Even in marriage contracts we have from ancient Near Eastern world, they would actually signify, hey, if I don't produce a child, then my maidservant will be given as a surrogate to help bring about a child. Extraordinarily common in that cultural context. This is in no way, because we see it in the text, God condoning, encouraging, or celebrating this practice. And what we see actually across the pages of Genesis is that whenever God's design of one man, one woman for a lifetime is pushed against in any particular way, problems incur. Which is a good reminder. I just find it fascinating. When we look back in history, it's so easy to condemn and to put our noses in the air and say, how could they be so foolish and follow what is such a destructive cultural practice, but we do the exact same thing today in our own culturally celebrated avenues that are completely antagonistic to God's good design. May we beware when we come with arrogance and judgment of the past that we are not repeating the, the mistakes in the present. Anyway, uh, Sarai, right? She comes, Sarai comes to Abram and she says, hey, here is my maidservant, Mary, my maidservant. This is maybe the way that God's going to bring about children. And Abe had a great opportunity here. He could have said, because he's the one that whom God spoke to, he could have said, hey, no, 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 Sarah, I know, I know it's been 10 years. I, I'm exhausted too. That's why I was so frank with God last time we had this conversation. I know it feels far-fetched, but we got to trust the promise of God. He could have said that. But instead, he kind of creepily goes along with the request. Like, sure, I'll marry your maidservant. Like, come on, Abe. Like, what's going on here, buddy? And he completely blows it again. Look with me, chapter 16, verse 3. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, 
and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Hagar is put in an impossible situation. An impossible situation. Now, what's also interesting when you go to the Hebrew, there is a particular word that could be used to describe Hagar as a concubine. This true surrogate role, rather than having equal status within the wife economy. But instead, the word that is used here for wife is meant to communicate full status as a wife. Not as a concubine, as a wife. So now Hagar has gone from slave to co-equal with Sarai. And right after they get married, she gets pregnant. She didn't ask for this. She didn't ask to be married to Abram. She didn't ask to be this surrogate role. She didn't ask to go through all of this, but she becomes pregnant, and Sarai, she is angry. She feels worthless. She feels replaced. She feels invisible. I mean, is there any sort of scenario in which this could have gone well? Old guy with older, barren wife, Mary's new young wife, has a child that the older wife always wanted. Like, is there any scenario in which this would have worked out in like a harmonious, no, like this is crazy the way this all plays out. And it all falls apart. How are they not going to hate each other in this process? But things get even worse. So Sarai, she comes to Abram, and we see this here. And I think the New Living Translation captures this best. Chapter 16, verse 5. There's some complex Hebrew there, but I love the way the New Living Translation captures it. It says, Then Sarai said to Abram, This is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms, but now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show who's wrong, you or me. Now, does Abe finally step up? Does he try to like bring harmony between now his two wives? Like, hey, we're in this together, going the long haul, so let's try to go about peaceably. Does he stand up for his new wife and his child? No. Abe drops the ball again, and he just passively, like his passive response makes things so much worse. Look with me here at chapter 16, verse 6. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Come on, Abe, again? Like, you're just, you're just ready for Abe, you know, to kind of step up for once, but then drops the ball again and again and again throughout this narrative. And can you imagine Hagar in this moment? How vulnerable she feels. She was enslaved back in Egypt. She's given as a gift to Abram and Sarai. They leave her homeland. Now she's found, and it's 10 years in Canaan, and they're out there, and her mistress still is not able to conceive, and so her mistress goes to her master and says, okay, you're going to marry your master, Hagar. And Hagar's like, oh my goodness, here we go. And then saying, okay, the goal is that you get pregnant. Then you bring about this child for the family. She does get pregnant. She does everything she's told to do, and now she becomes the center of animosity in the whole family. She's done everything she can within her power. And it's led to daily verbal, emotional, and probably physical abuse to the point she just can't take it any longer. And so she takes off. 
Can you blame her? And she starts making her way, it says, on the road to Shur. Which from Canaan, that means she's heading back home, down to Egypt. And what she's basically saying by taking this route, by leaving Abram and Sarah, is saying, I'd rather die than spend one more day here. I mean, the plight of the single mom has always been a vulnerable one. I grew up with a single mom. And so from my vantage point as a son, I've seen the pain and the turmoil and the difficulty and just had a taste of the existential weight that was placed upon her. But now I want you to think about in the ancient Near Eastern context, a single mom pregnant in the middle of the desert, unsure if she's going to get another meal or another drink of water anywhere, vulnerable to men in that culture and complete, you know, out in the middle of the wilderness, and then on top of that, this is a patriarchal society. She's running away from her husband. And she's a slave, a runaway slave. This is the ultimate picture of desperation. So we cue Act 3. And this is the part of the story that was read for us earlier this morning. Hagar has never been more vulnerable, has never felt more invisible. When the rest of the world is preoccupied with their own problems and pain. I mean, where is God in all of this? We come to see he's looking right down on her. When everybody else has failed her, abused her, abandoned her, God finds her. Look with me here, chapter 16, verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. The spring on the way to Shur. Imagine this moment. Hagar is there, maybe feeling like she's getting her last drink and, and wondering if she's going to make it out of this alive, wondering if the baby that kicks within her is going to survive or even have anything of a semblance of a quote-unquote good life. And when she's never felt more vulnerable, she sees someone coming. But it's unlike anyone she's ever seen before. The angel of the Lord finds Hagar. And this is really significant. This is really significant because as you read across the pages of Scripture, there's something really unique about the angel of the Lord. This angel is not like any of the other myriad of angels that are out there. This angel of the Lord, every time it shows up, there's this strange connection, almost similarity as if this angel were Yahweh himself, the God of the universe, taking on form, coming. Some theologians even think this is the pre-incarnate Christ who's come to meet. And, and frankly, when I'm reading this, if I'm honest, I'm, I'm extraordinarily shocked because I would expect this angel of the Lord to show up to Abram. I would expect this angel of the Lord to show up to Sarai. But the first time the angel of the Lord shows up, he shows up to what Jesus calls later the least of these. The abandoned, the forgotten, the abused Egyptian slave girl, Hagar. What an amazing God we worship that is consistently himself across the pages of Scripture and constantly surprising us by his unending love. 
And when he comes to Hagar, he comes with questions first. Not demands, although those come later. But questions. And he calls her by name, Hagar. Which, interestingly enough, Bruce Waltke, um, one of these uh, ancient Near Eastern scholars, goes on to say that this is the only instance in ancient Near Eastern literature where the deity addresses a woman by name. There's something humanizing about addressing her by name. And he comes asking questions. Where are you going? Where are you coming from? And unlike Adam, as we saw earlier in Genesis, unlike Eve, that we saw earlier in Genesis, unlike Cain, she doesn't try to hide. She doesn't try to deceive. She doesn't try to avoid. She lays it all out there. I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. She's desperate. She's got nothing to hide. She's there all alone in the middle of the wilderness. I mean, what other option does she have? And then what the angel of the Lord says next, I have to be honest, is utterly astounding. It's shocking to me. The angel of the Lord looks at her and says, it's time to go back. Go back to Sarai. Go back to Abram. Go back to all that pain. Go back to all that brokenness, the abuse, the abandonment. And it, I'm, I'm honest with you here. I'm reading this text and I'm thinking, why? <laughs> like, God, do you understand what you're calling her back into? Do you see the scenario by which you're bringing? And listen, I can know from an ancient Near Eastern perspective that that's probably her best bet of survival and the best bet of survival for that child. I probably could admit that. But still, it makes my stomach turn when I hear that God's saying, go back. In the midst of so much pain, go back. There are plenty of times we don't understand why God allows us to stay in painful and suffering circumstances that are simultaneously unjust. But it's a clear reminder that as we're reading this text, it is not prescriptive. It is descriptive. It's describing us a moment in time where God works in that particular person's life. This is not a proof text for any single person to remain in an abusive relationship. Nor is this God's approval of Abram or Sarai's actions. And yet it is unbelievably undeniable that the God who has unbounded love calls her to go back to a very broken situation. And Hagar is left speechless. Now, if you notice in your text in verses 9, 10, and 11, there's this weird repetition. The angel of the Lord said to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her. The angel of the Lord said to her. Now, you might expect in the midst of a dialogue, when somebody says something, you go, Sarai said this, then Hagar said that. There's this back and forth. But here... There is this staccato repetition. The angel of the Lord said to her, the angel of the Lord. The reason, this literary tool, most commentators will notice, the reason this is repeated three times is because Hagar's response is speechlessness. You're meant to feel the pregnant pause. No pun intended. You're meant to feel that. You're meant to hear the angel of the Lord say, return to your mistress and submit to her. And to feel the silence. The angel of the Lord also said to her, 
I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Feel the silence. The angel of the Lord also said to her, and then he gets very specific talking about the baby within her womb. The very son that kicks within her. And he says, I've listened to your affliction. And I want you to name your son Ishmael. You know what Ishmael means? God hears. I've seen you. I've heard you. And I'm going to make your son great. I'm going to make him a multitude of nations. And it's right there that finally Hagar is able to speak again. You see, it's not going to be easy to return, but she has hope in her heart for the child within her womb, her suffering for his life. Her circumstances don't improve. Later on, when you get to chapter 21, it gets worse. She gets kicked out. But she holds on to the promise for her son that is within her and says, I will hold fast to this promise. And everything changes. Not her circumstances, but her outlook from there on after. She went into the desert alone, abandoned and cursed, but she comes out of the desert seen, heard, and holding fast to a promise. And then we come to Genesis chapter 16, verse 13, and I love the way the NIV translates this. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. It wasn't going to be easy going back. It wasn't going to be a walk in the park. It was going to be extraordinarily difficult. But she knew that God saw her. She held fast to the promise that God gave her. And if you fast forward, we get the genealogy of Ishmael, that out of Ishmael, God actually does follow through on his promise. The signs of that fulfillment don't come till decades later. Decades, not days, decades, which just seems unfathomable. She holds fast to a promise in the midst of suffering she doesn't deserve. Holding fast to a promise that God gave her when he saw her and she knew that he saw her. God follows through. And you know what's so fascinating is that thousands of years later, here we are. Millions upon millions of people have read and learned about what she perceived would be hidden suffering that the world would never know. And now people this world over who long to know God take deep comfort from what she experienced from God. In the midst of that moment, which seemingly was invisible to the rest of the world. A story we frankly should never have known due to her status. But God uses her in a magnificent way through her suffering to tell a story that is greater than her. And now everyone knows the name Hagar. God never wastes anything. And his plans are so much bigger than ours if we have the eyes to see them. They just make take generations to come to fruition. So if there's one thing in the midst of this unbelievably surprising story that I think we can take away, and there's a lot, but if there's one thing I want us to write down and I want anyone in here to forget, it's this. It's that your suffering is never invisible to God. Your suffering is never 
invisible to God. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter whether your suffering is because of decisions you've made or decisions other people have made for you or towards you, no matter how long you've been enduring suffering, pain, heartache, questions, confusion, it is never invisible to our God. Hagar teaches us that the Bible, the God of the Bible, is one who sees you, he sees me, he sees us. And I don't know where you feel invisible this morning. Maybe as you're hearing the story of Sarai, you long for a child and the sting of infertility is something you're quietly wrestling with. Longing for a child of your own. And now suddenly you're seeing babies everywhere. That was a part of Allie's and my story. We had for a season, this long season of, of infertility. And then suddenly when you're trying and you can't, you just see babies everywhere. It's like strollers come out of the woodwork. And you don't feel like you can share that with anyone because other things feel fine and you feel like you're complaining and it can feel so isolating, so and you can feel so invisible. I want you to hear this morning, your suffering is never invisible to God. Maybe you're here this morning and you're, you experience physical pain. From the outside looking in, people may see a smile. Your life may look like it's fine, but internally you feel like you're wasting away. Like your body is deteriorating. You're waging this war. And, and you don't feel like you can share with anyone. And you feel in, isolated. You feel invisible. Here this morning, your suffering is not invisible to God. Maybe in our cultural context, you feel invisible because of your ethnicity, your race, your culture, your orientation. Maybe you just moved to Kansas City and you, and you feel like, I don't know anyone and no one seems to want to know me and you feel invisible. Maybe you're a newlywed or you have, you're a new parent and you're like, this is way bigger than I thought. I don't, I don't know what I'm doing and you feel extraordinarily ill-equipped. Maybe it's a series of past failures. Maybe there's a prison record and in all of these things, you feel isolated, you feel invisible. I want you to know your suffering is never invisible to God. And off we get. If that could not be just a really neat idea, but something that's like weaseled its way into the very core of our heart, where it becomes a conviction that shapes our actions, you know what that'll produce within you? It'll produce courage like you've never known to step in the face of harm's way. It'll produce courage in you to step out when God calls you to do the unthinkable, the thing that feels crazy. Because it's consistent with his design and what he's called you for. But not only courage, but it'll bring this unbelievable confidence. Confidence that even though you feel hidden, he hears your hidden prayers. And that, in the words of Romans 8, he is working all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose, even if it takes generations to be fulfilled. Maybe not tomorrow. It may be generations. But you have confidence in that. And because this is so important, I want to take note of the little note card you got when you came in today. Everybody got one of those? We've gotten really high tech with our handouts lately. Office Max is a ministry partner. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> on the top of this note card, we're going to do something, okay? This is going to be both a little exercise together as well as a homework assignment for the week. On the top of this note card, I want you to write that big idea. Your suffering is never invisible to God. 
Your suffering is never invisible to God. And then I want you to answer this question. Where do you feel invisible? Right underneath that, I want you to put that answer. And maybe you need to think on that for a bit. Maybe you need to spend some time thinking on that this week. Your suffering is never invisible to God. Where do you feel invisible? And then right underneath that answer, I want you to fill in this blank with that answer. My is never invisible to God. My pain, my anxiety, my infertility, my constant fatigue, my abuse at work. What is that? My fill-in-the-blank is never invisible to God. And as you, whether it's this morning or later this week, as you're filling that out and you're thinking about that, I want you every day this next week to pull that out and look at it. This is a, this is a truth that we see revealed in this story about who our God is. And it brings confidence. It brings courage. And listen, if you don't believe it, you might end up being like Sarai, who has privilege and power, but in her own aching, leverages that privilege and power to bring abuse upon the vulnerable within her sphere. You may find yourself like Abram, who instead of standing up for the vulnerable, is passive and steps back. Or you may find yourself like Hagar at the beginning of the story and running away. This is really hard to believe that your suffering is never invisible to God. That what you're wrestling through is not overlooked. But that your God is pursuing you. That the historical trajectory of our God is that the first become last and the last become first. That widows, orphans, immigrants, the ones that the rest of the world overlooks, God does not look over, but he looks specifically into and leverages even more of his energy to care for the ones the rest of the world doesn't see. Do you see that? Do you believe that? Because it's really hard to believe, to rest in this truth, to know it, to be convicted that God sees you, me, us. And I would say it's near impossible. The only way that it's possible, the only way it's possible is if you see the one who sees you. That's Hagar's experience. Once again, Genesis 16, verse 13. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. So I want to take a step back. Have you seen the one who sees you? Do you see him for who he is? That the same God who met Hagar by that spring of water is the one who took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. That all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, portray Jesus as the image of the invisible God. And how does this God, who is always consistent with his character, act? Well, when you go to John chapter 4, he meets another forsaken woman by another body of water, a little well. When the rest of her community had ostracized her, such that she couldn't even go to the well to draw water when other women were there, let alone men. 
The rest of her community had ostracized her, had distanced themselves from her. She comes to the well when no one else is there, but Jesus goes there on purpose at that particular time. And he sees her, warts and all. And he invites her to know him, to see him. And her response is astounding. She goes back to the community that ostracized her, back to the community that made her an outcast, back to the community where she'd experienced so much pain. And what does she do? She comes back and she says, you know, you, you have to see this, this man who told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ, the promised one? Come see him. Come know him. I've seen him. You need to see him. You need to come and experience him. And not only do we have a God who sees us and longs to be seen by us, we have a God who doesn't just recognize their suffering, but he entered our suffering all the way to the core that he can look you in the eye in the way that no one else can and say, I completely understand where you are. Because it wasn't by accident that he died on the cross. He chose, he chose to go in the hiddenness of night and to be unjustly condemned to suffer untold abuse on the cross and to die our death to offer us forgiveness free of charge. His suffering, our life. That we might know welcome and might know the promise of everlasting life. Have you seen the one who sees you? Because he sees your suffering. It's never invisible to him. And he longs to welcome you in. He longs to give you courage and confidence that you didn't even know you had for the life that you do have. And who knows? Who knows how your story, with its hidden pains that feel completely invisible to the rest of the world, how God might be using those stories, even now, your story, for the good of the world, generations down the road. In the same way he did with Sally Hemings, with Hagar, and the woman at the well. Have you seen the one who sees you? Your suffering is never invisible to God. Let's rest in that together. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. that doesn't give us simplistic characters, but give us the complex experience of humanity, invites us into robust truth about who you are that comforts us where we are. We hold fast that you are the God who sees us with all of our brokenness and all of our pain and all of our suffering, and you went to the greatest extreme to welcome us in free of charge. That you see us, and that we can see you, and that one day we will see you fully as you are. And how deep will we come to understand your love for us when that day comes. Give us but a sweet taste of your grace afresh today so that we might trust your promises today for the future all the more. We pray this in the name of Jesus and by the power of his Holy Spirit who carries us forward. Amen.